reading is taken from Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. And this may be found on page 1178 of your church Bible or on the screen behind me. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Thanksgiving and prayer. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion and to the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending or, and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Gospel reading is taken from the Gospel of St. Luke, it's chapter 3. You'll find it on page 1029, or it's up on the screen. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads will become straight, the rough ways smooth. And all mankind we'll see God's salvation. Well, good evening. Great to see you all. Please do keep your Bibles open at that Gospel reading. We're going to be 
looking at it in just a moment. For those of you who may be new, my name's Jit, I'm one of the ministers here. Fairly new myself, actually. Been here about a month, and it's a great pleasure to be digging into that Luke passage in just a moment. But before we do, let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you for your word, and we pray and ask that by the power of your Spirit, we might hear from you, that you might open our eyes to see you, our hearts to love you more, our lives to more reflect your glory. In your name we ask this. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to begin with a... Am I on? Yep. I'll use this mainly then. I want to begin with a conversation that is reported to have happened in 1995 between Canadian authorities and an American naval vessel. And it begins with the Canadians radioing over to the American naval vessel this. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. And the Americans respond with these words. Recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the north. Canadians respond negative. You will have to divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The Americans reply, this is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. The Canadians said, no, I say again, divert your course. The Americans, uh, thinking that the Canadians are being slightly difficult, reply, this is the aircraft carrier, the USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. I say, say again, that's 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. And the Canadians reply back, we are a lighthouse, it's your call. Some of you heard that this morning, but yes. Now, sadly, we're not sure if that conversation actually did happen, but I like to think it did. But I wanted to start with that simply to highlight that that difference between the Americans and the Canadians is actually very similar to the difference we find at the very beginning of our chapter between two groups, or actually one group and one single person. The first group is Luke's account of all the regional powers that ruled over Judea at the time. It begins in verse 1. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, sounds like a nice dish, actually, Lysania, um, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. There are two opposing forces here. One is the group of rulers, headed by Tiberius Caesar, the emperor at the time, who was known, actually, at the end of his life to be slightly despotic and saying all kinds of crazy and mad sayings. And then under him was Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor appointed over the region at the time, who was known especially for his cruelty, actually, according to sources of the time. And then alongside him were three of the four tetrarchs, local regional leaders who were in name Jews, but actually were just Roman puppets. And then alongside them are the two high priests of the time, Caiaphas and Annas. Caiaphas was the old high priest, Annas is the new one. Caiaphas and Annas are related, though. 
Annas is Caiaphas's son-in-law. It's a bit of a family dynasty going on in the high priesthood at the time. And between them, between these characters, they have all the power, all the prestige, all the might, actually. They're to be feared. You don't mess with them. You don't trifle with these powers. But in contrast to that comes John, the son of Zechariah, a lone voice coming from the wilderness. And he comes with the word of God, asking a whole nation to change its course. He preaches around the countryside a baptism of repentance, like a lighthouse, actually, giving a message, preparing for salvation. There's danger ahead. You need to change your ways. And what we're going to look at today is what John the Baptist said and why he said it. Luke, the theologian, tells us that he said it for a very special reason. It was a fulfillment of a prophecy made by Isaiah in Isaiah 40, which goes like this. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall be made straight and rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. Now, for most of us, this imagery will be lost to us because we don't make long journeys on foot. We tend to take the car or the train or a bus or even a plane. Whereas in that time, unless you were very wealthy, all the long journeys you took would have been by foot. And so they would have known what it would have been to be hindered by things like valleys and mountains and crooked roads and, and things that actually just got really annoying. We might think they're picturesque, but to them, they were just hindrances for the journey. And that imagery is what John the Baptist is about. Because his message of repentance and his proclamation, actually, why don't you do something physical and get baptized as a sign of repentance, were about removing hindrances from before Jesus' feet. Because Jesus was coming just round the corner as their saviour. And there needed to be straight paths prepared in front of him so that when he came, people would recognise God's salvation. People would recognise he is the saviour. There would be no hindrances, there would be no obstacles, and his people could be saved. And so he proclaims this message to remove anything that would stop that happening, so that there might be a straightforward path, free of anything that would stop them being saved from their Messiah that they'd been waiting for, who was just about to come. And what I want to do this evening is just to highlight three of those hindrances that John the Baptist's preaching removed Three hindrances that actually we might need removing as well as we await the Lord's salvation and as we seek it day by day. And the first hindrance is that of self-deception. That actually we've got nothing to be saved from. Sin isn't a problem in our lives, so we don't need a saviour. In the passage, John's message comes from the desert, somewhere a bit out of left field, not culturally appropriate perhaps the culture of the time would say we're okay there's no problems actually we're God's people no need to worry whereas John's message is very clear no there is a problem there is sin in your life and you need to repent and get it sorted and it comes from the desert somewhere completely different so that it might just pierce those bubbles of self-deception there is a problem 
And actually often that's exactly what we need today as well. Because the current generation also has that same bubble of self-deception that hangs over it, that says, no, actually there's no problem. I don't need a saviour, I don't need Christ this Christmas. I don't have any sin in my life that needs sorting. I came across this uh, quote from the actress Joan Collins recently, who said this, I have never done anything bad to anyone, never. And it's one of the things I am proud of. I've never hurt anybody, I've never been vicious about anybody, I've never taken any drugs, never tricked anyone. On the contrary, I can say that many people have done harm to me. I basically think that when one meets one's maker, if I do, there won't be anything that I've done that I will need to be ashamed of. Nothing. Now, I haven't met many people like that in my life, especially in ministry, but I have met a number of people that would say, actually, relatively, that's true of me, that actually, relatively, I'm a good person compared to some other people who are awful and evil. And relative to them, well, actually, no. I don't have sin as a problem in my life. I'm a good person. And it may well be true, actually, that relative to other people, you might be a good person. You're not a mass murderer. You don't defraud your taxes. I hope not. You don't do anything that's obviously evil. And so how can sin be a problem? Relatively, you're okay. Well, let me suggest two things that are wrong with that self-deception. The Apostle John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. There are two things wrong with that. Firstly, it uses the wrong set of scales. You see, the Bible says that the right set of scales isn't us compared to other people. It's actually us compared to God. And compared to God and his perfection, all of us fall very far from the mark. In fact, Romans 3.23, you'll know the verse. All have sinned and fallen short the mark of God's glory. A way of seeing this very easily is to simply read the Gospels and to see the life of Jesus, God in the flesh, and then compare your life to his and ask the question, okay, am I okay now? How do I measure up? Soon realize that actually, no, I've got sin as a problem in my life as well. The Puritans actually used to use an interesting image of this uh, to try and explain it. They, want, they asked you to imagine that there was someone stood at the top of a mountain shouting down to someone at the bottom of a mine shaft saying, I'm closer to the stars than you are. But then peering upwards and then realizing actually both of them are in exactly the same boat. Both of them are very far from the stars. And that actually the difference makes no difference at all. And we're in that position, we're all in the same boat, compared to the infinite holiness, compared to the mark of God's glory, before very far short, every single one of us. We all need God's salvation. Second reason why self-deception is a silly thing to be doing, really, is that it assumes and presumes that we can see sin. And sin is a, has a very clever way of camouflaging itself quite often, that we can't see it. You see, we live in a cultural context where some things that are good are actually called evil, and things that are actually evil are called good. And we can absorb those values and think, actually, the stuff that we're doing is okay, because everyone else says it's okay. We can let ourselves off the hook, we can excuse things, 
We can say, okay, well, there's people worse than me, and so I must be doing okay in this area or that. The problem is, we're not the ones that can see our own sin quite often. Neither are other people around us. Actually, the person who sees it clearly is God himself. Actually, there's some sins that only are exposed under the light of his shining. But as he does that, you realize, oh, yes, actually, there is a problem. I hadn't seen it. No one else has seen it, but God sees it very clearly. I know personally, over, over my life following Christ, that I've just had this growing awareness of an increasing sinfulness, if I'm honest. And I don't think that's because I'm getting worse. I hope not. I think, actually, it's as I've drawn closer to the light of Christ, more of the stuff in my life, the muck, has been exposed. And I'm just glad he didn't do it all at once. He doesn't do that in his mercy, otherwise we'd be overwhelmed. But he does just reveal just the depths of sin in our hearts, the stuff that's wrong, attitudes and thoughts and desires that just are far, far away from what is good. And as I say that, it might be that you're aware that there are things that are in your life at the moment, even as I've just been saying it, I just have a sense that for a few of you, you know that that's pointing to something very deliberate, very clear. I want to commend you to deal with that tonight, to deal with it. Well, that's the first hindrance, one of self-deception. The second one that John the Baptist's preaching gets rid of is that of hardness of heart. And a common accusation against Christians and the church is simply this. Who are you to judge me for my sin? Who are you to judge me for sin? Okay, if there is sin in my life, why is it a problem? Why are you pointing your finger? And the only answer to that is actually we're no one to do it. We're all in the same boat. It's made very clear in the passage that John's message originated from God. It said the word of God came to John in the desert. That actually he was just a messenger for God. Don't shoot the messenger. The real question behind it all is why does God think your sin is a problem? Why does he say you need saving from it? And the simple answer is this, let me suggest, that God is a just God who shows justice. And because he's a God who shows justice, that means that wrongdoing, sin, has to have a consequence, that there is punishment for it. And I know that that's very hard in the modern climate to accept, to believe about God. But actually, if we were really honest, we wouldn't want any other type of God who didn't do that to wrongdoing. Let me give you an example. The Yugoslavian theologian Miroslav Zvolf Uh, lived through the civil war in his country in the 90s. And he used to have a huge problem, even as a theologian, with this idea of God punishing sin in wrath. But then he said this, My last resistance to the idea of God's justice and wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavian region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century. 
800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because God is love. And I think we know this ourselves. When we flick on the TV news and see the most horrible crimes being perpetrated or open a newspaper on any given day, a lot of emotions will well up. But one of them is a cry for justice. There must be justice in the world for this stuff. This, there must be something that sorts this out in the end. Otherwise, it's just not fair. And if we have that cry for justice in our hearts, well, imagine how big the cry for justice is in God's heart, who's so much greater than us, so much more perfect than us. He has a great cry of justice against all wrongdoing. But of course, that includes us and our wrongdoing. We'll be hypocrites to apply it to others and not to us. And God isn't a hypocrite, and neither should we be. The Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn spoke about the fact that the dividing line between evil and good runs through every human heart. That there's no sense in which you can say there's good people over there, and there's bad people over there, and God can just judge those people and leave those people okay, because the dividing line between those two groups actually runs right through us. We're a mixture of both, if we're honest. And then he goes on to say, who'd be willing to destroy their own heart? Because that would be what God would have to do to separate the two out. This is tough stuff. This is heavy stuff. But the good news of the gospel is that as much as God hates sin, hates sin in your life, and actually one day will have to judge it, as much as that is true of him, it is true that he loves you, that he shows compassion towards you, that he has mercy. And the two become one because he sends his son, his own divinity and humanity, to take the judgment, to take the punishment upon himself. He says, I'm not content for them to suffer this stuff. They've messed up. There must be justice, but I'm going to absorb it myself in the most painful way possible. The separation of that loving relationship, that brokenness that we might be healed. He says, I'm going to do it, that they will never have to experience this. If you want to know how serious sin is, you just need to look at the cross and what Christ took there for you. But if you want to know how seriously God loves you, you just need to look at the cross and what Christ took there for you. Oh, that's the second hindrance. The fact that there's hardness of heart. And the last one that John the Baptist removes through his preaching that would have been true in those days and true today is that of complacency. From other Gospels accounts, we, re we read that actually the first group of people to turn up on the scene to undergo baptism for repentance were the Pharisees, unexpectedly. And John the Baptist rightly calls them out on it and says, you're not doing this as an act of true repentance. You're actually doing this as an act of religious self-righteousness. 
You actually think you're okay, but you're not. You become complacent about your place in God's economy. You become complacent about the fact that you're God's chosen people. You're not okay. Get with the program. Deal with your sin. And actually, this is the danger that faces every single generation of God's people, thinking that we graduate from the need for salvation, that we graduate from the gospel, that actually, once we've been saved, oh, we're fine. It's all okay. In one sense, it's true. It's a finished work at the cross. But in another sense, we still need to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, as Paul writes. We still need to be saved on a daily basis. John Newton, the uh, famous hymn writer who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace and had that remarkable story of being a slave trader but then in the midst of a storm turning to Christ being saved and then later becoming a minister actually. He said at the end of his life something very remarkable, well-known words. He said this, My memory is nearly gone but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour. Truth is that you needed to be saved the day you first were saved. You've needed to be saved every single day since then. And you will need to be saved that day that you face Jesus. This is true for every single day of your life. Don't become complacent. Deal with that stuff that is wrong. You need salvation. Well, let me end with a story, just to brighten the mood, perhaps of what can happen if actually we do deal with the stuff that's wrong in our lives. For John the Baptist generation, it meant that they would be able to receive Christ as saviour, as the great, the, that great joy of salvation, of coming Messiah, who we look towards in this Advent season as well. That actually, oh, he's come, and then experiencing his life in their life. And for us, actually, if we're serious about the stuff that's wrong in our lives, we will get to experience exactly the same. I want to end with this story of uh, someone called John Hyde, who's often known as Praying Hyde because of the amount, he spent, amount of time he spent praying. And interesting, wherever he went, he tended to see revival as well. The two were linked. And he was an American missionary to the Punjab district in India, and he was often asked to speak at big conferences. And he recounts the following about one conference he was asked to speak at. He got up at the beginning of it and said, I thank God he has given me no message for you today. Can't imagine that happening here, but... Uh, well, maybe, maybe. I'll try that one day, Mike, and see what happens. <laughs> well, the convention convener then announced the following. The Holy Spirit is the leader of this meeting. And then asked the Spirit to come. And then Hyde recounts what happened next. The people began to speak as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, and there was liberty but not license. Conviction of sin came over the people like a tidal wave. Many were in great mental agony and intense physical strain as the felt near presence of God settled on the congregation. Men and women forgot each other as the divine searchlight was flashed on their lives. Some began to confess sins that blazed in their hearts, and others, as they arose to speak, trembled as hidden sins were brought to the light. Then it was that sunshine came and flooded the place, and joy was depicted on many faces. Mouths were filled with laughter and song. 
then it was that we began to realize what it is to experience joy in the Holy Spirit. Truth is, if you want to know more of God in your life, more of his presence, more of his joy over you, you can do all kinds of things. You can go off to conferences, you can read the right books, you can talk to the right people, but the most surefire way of experiencing more of God in your life is to deal with sin that separates you from him to seek his salvation, to confess and to repent and to turn away and know that joy of forgiveness and to know that, that laughter, that joy that actually God is near, that he hasn't left us or abandoned us. He's a saviour who saves. I commend you tonight that he's a saviour. In the Luke passage, he's just round the corner and here he's just here waiting, waiting people to know that salvation afresh. Amen. Just before um, Joss comes up to lead us in prayer, I thought we'd take a moment um, to prepare our hearts. Having heard uh, what the Lord is saying to us through Jit, through John the Baptist, So let's take a moment of quiet and allow the Holy Spirit to shine a spotlight on particular things in our lives that we know God wants to deal with. Don't be afraid of that process. It may feel very uncomfortable and hard for us, but when God can unlock our hearts with repentance, then he can bring joy. words of confession. <laughs> Most merciful God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, We know we've sinned in thought and word and deed. We haven't loved with our whole heart. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. The words on the screen now. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us to amend what we are and direct what we shall be that we may do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you, our God. 
Almighty God, who forgives all who truly repent, have mercy upon you. Pardon and deliver you from all your sins. Confirm and strengthen you in all goodness and keep you in life eternal. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Because we have forgiveness with God, we have peace in his presence. So the peace of the Lord be always with you. Maybe you'd just like to turn to one another and share God's peace. God's peace be with you. So as we continue to prepare our hearts uh, to share fellowship with the Almighty God, which is uh, of all of this, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've zipped over the intercessions now. Just before we open our hearts, sorry guys, just before we open our hearts to uh, worship and share communion with God, we're going to bring the needs of the world before him. Sorry. Just two words, of, a couple of verses of scripture just to prepare us for prayer. Eh? And we're going to pray understanding the present time. The hour has come to wake up from our slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. Day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come into your presence because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Father, we know we live in a broken world and yet it is a world that you love that you long to restore just as you long to restore us and those who live in it. Father, we pray tonight for those in ISIS. Father, we pray that you would open their eyes and their hearts to Jesus, for the Lord Jesus to bring healing, for the Lord Jesus to bring repentance, for the Lord Jesus to turn them away from works of violence. And Father, we pray for us. We pray for Christians who face dearly persecution in their countries to put on that armour of light. And no matter how difficult to love, we pray, Father, also for those in our own government 
and in governments around the world who have to make hard decisions as to how to act. We pray, Father, for wisdom, real wisdom for them, Lord. We pray for those who must carry out the commands of their lawfully elected governments and who must take up arms to resist. Father, we just leave these things in front of your throne. We cannot judge. We don't sometimes know the answers, but you do, Lord. We know that in all things, you are working your purposes out for those that love you. And we just, Father, bring this whole issue of terrorism, violence, and how to best meet it and to mitigate it and to bring aid to those who are innocent and suffer. We really ask it in Jesus' name. Father, we pray for our world that is hurting, and we remember this week the Conference on Climate Change in Paris. We pray again for wisdom for those who lead the different countries of the world to make wise decisions. Father, help the rich to be generous. Help them, Father, to help those who are poor and cannot help themselves. Father, help those who want to become rich, not to do it in a way that we have set the example to them for. To take and not to give. To be greedy with the resources that you have bountifully blessed us with. Help us, Father, to share and to be wise and to be good stewards of your created world. Father, we pray for our own country tonight, for those in the north of England and in Scotland who are suffering because of the floods. Father, we just pray for your mercy. We thank you for those who are working to bring relief. And we pray, Father, against further flood destruction. In your name we ask it, Lord Jesus. Father, we turn to our own community. We pray for those who work in the health sector and for social workers. We pray for carers, Lord, and those who bring uh, relief to those who are ill or suffering in mind, body, or spirit. We pray, Father, that you would help carry their burdens. We pray against tiredness, against a hardening of hearts. We pray for discernment and wisdom each and every day as they face hardship and suffering. Father, we pray for the Mission Society, the Church Pastoral Aid Society, founded in 1836, and who is our own church sponsor. We pray that they will be faithful to your call and to their mission, which is to enable churches to help every person hear and discover the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray you will help them 
to continue to equip churches and Christians to make disciples, to help train and develop leaders, and to help disciple young people. Father, we pray for the CPAS work especially in partnership with the theological colleges, uh, St. Melitus in London, Trinity College in Bristol, Wycliffe Hall in Oxford, and Cranmer Hall in Durham. Father, we pray for the leadership training that they provide to those training for ministry in those colleges. We also pray for the Ventures and Falcons camp whose bookings have opened for summer 2016 for young people and for those young people, Father, even though they don't know it yet, to have amazing encounters with the Lord Jesus and be blessed with friendship and love with each other. Father, here in our own church, we pray for those who are unwell. We pray for Jeanette Hayward, for David Fry, for Theo Roberts, for Kevin Claxton, for Lily Moore, and for Martin Preston. We pray, Father, for your healing hands. We pray for healing hands for the doctors and nurses who bring treatment to them, Lord. And we pray for your divine healing, Lord. Father, we just want to gather round and pray for Helen, Lord. And we just lift Helen up to you, Lord Jesus, uh, and the operation she faces. If anybody would just like to come up and gather round Helen to pray with her, please do. Thank you, Lord, for giving Helen the courage to share both what's happening for her later this week and also the fear that she has. Monday, it's on Monday. Next Monday. A week on Monday. Yes. Okay. Father, we ask for your healing and for your peace in Helen this week. Amen. Amen. Next week, next week not this week. Okay. The following well, week. Preparing. <laughs> Father, just in our prayers, we lift up to you those who have been recently bereaved. And we think of the family and friends of Betty Doherty, Jack Biden, David Smith, and Doris Freethe. We ask, Father, for your comfort and loving hands on them at this time. Father, all of these things we ask in Jesus' name, remembering the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. Amen. So let's um, turn our hearts again to worship, reminding ourselves Jesus is the core, the centre.